The What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. What happens after we die? Some people believe that if we've lived a good life and met the right qualifications, then we'll go to heaven. And if we don't measure up, then hell's our fate. And drawing largely from allegorical language in the Hebrew and Christian texts, hell is often described as a place where there is, quote, weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. It's also described as a place of total darkness. So basically, it's a place you would never want to be. And I think this is often presented as the dominant or primary way to think about the concept of hell. And it's terrifying. For centuries, children have heard this message and been told that when they die, they could be tortured forever by a God that supposedly loves them. We've been told that we can follow God or face the consequences. And the consequences for disobeying God are eternal damnation. Ironically, some of the same brands of Christianity that have preached this fire and brimstone message regarding the sin of mankind have also preached against the abolition of slavery. Somehow, saying you don't believe in Jesus seemed to be a worse transgression than, say, owning, abusing, or even killing another human. For a long time, our understanding of hell has been divorced from the political realities that many face day in and day out. But does it have to be that way? This is episode 7 of the What Would It Take podcast. Join me as we explore the question, what if hell is closer than we think? Listen in. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Students in high school, college, or graduate school are invited to enter a Peace Essay Contest sponsored by Bethany Theological Seminary. This year's theme? Civil Resistance and Nonviolent Social Change in an Increasingly Virtual World. First prize is $2,000 and the deadline is May 15th. For details, email contactus at bethanyseminary.edu. Bethany Seminary, so that the world flourishes. Now, those of you that know my story remember that I grew up in an evangelical branch of Christianity. We had a very strong understanding of what the afterlife was and, more specifically, of what hell was. It was eternal torment, literal flames, pain, and agony forever. We were told that you could be sent to hell for almost anything. Murder? Check. Lying? Check. Cheating on a spouse? Sure, why not? If you did these things and never asked for forgiveness, you could be sent to hell. But you could also qualify for hell if you lived a perfect life, but just never got around to asking Jesus to be your personal savior. That meant that regardless of the life you lived, unless you followed Jesus, you'd be going to hell. And it was presented to me as an immutable fact, an immovable truth of the universe. There was no way around it. And that fact was frightening. It was agonizing. It caused me to stay up late at night thinking about the people that I loved and wondering if they'd be tortured forever or if they'd get to enjoy glory after they died. 
In my tradition, hell was and still is largely understood as a literal place of existence designed by God for Satan, but put in use for people who disobeyed as well. You'll find this strain of belief about hell or this particular way of understanding hell throughout American Christianity or Western Christianity, but it's especially prominent in evangelical circles. It's the de facto understanding of the afterlife. You have eternal damnation on one hand and the pearly gates of heaven on the other. I even recall participating in a production of the unfortunate drama Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Now, if you grew up in the evangelical tradition, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. It is this sometimes large-scale production depicting different scenarios and relationships. You might have a family of folks that are just leaving dinner, driving home, when suddenly they get into a car crash. And the, the father wakes up in the afterlife and he's met by an angel who escorts him into heaven and there's wonderful music playing. It is a glorious scene. And then you have his children or his wife even, when they wake up, they see the pearly gates and they might step towards them, but they are quickly ushered away and told for some reason, usually because they didn't accept Jesus when they had the chance, that they had to face their punishment in hell. Eternal damnation, torture, weeping, gnashing of teeth. If it's a really upscale production, you'll hear audio of people screaming, there'll be fake flames coming up in the background, red lights flashing, even maybe a demonic or devilish figure as the actors are dragged off stage screaming, begging for mercy. Yeah, it sounds horrendous because it is. And at the end of the show, there's inevitably an altar call. See, because what Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames is designed to do is to supposedly save souls. They want to scare you so that you accept Jesus and become a Christian. Now, if I'm giving its creators and participants the benefit of the doubt, the belief, the fear is worth it. The ends justify the means. If we are keeping people from eternal damnation, then what's a little bit of emotional coercion? And I can say that because I participated. I think I was even an actor at one point. But honestly, As I sit back and think about it now, I wonder how on earth we can justify that. What I find most troubling about the overemphasis on the afterlife and hell in particular is the propensity to use it as a coercive tool to grow the church. I mean, to have an entire theatrical production designed to stir up intense feelings of fear so that you are motivated to, quote, choose Jesus is nothing short of manipulation. Think about it this way. In that same tradition that I grew up in, I was taught to believe that being a Christian meant having a relationship with God. And I was told that it wasn't all that different than having a relationship with another person. I was meant to communicate with God, to talk to God, to listen to God, and to even learn to love God and to accept God's love for me. Now, imagine if I had come home one day and told my parents or my pastor that I was in a new relationship. And they asked me what I liked about the person or or what caused me to ask them out. And I said, well, I was afraid that if I didn't, then they would hurt me. I was afraid that if I didn't ask them out, if I didn't choose them as my partner, that they might be violent. They might be abusive. They might cause me serious pain. So I chose them. You know what my parents or my pastor would tell me? They'd say, 
dude, you've been manipulated. You've been coerced. This is not the way you start a relationship. A relationship should be based upon love. It should be based upon care. It should be based upon safety. This isn't healthy for you. And yet, in that tradition, through that lens, when we talk about having a relationship with God, many times we're encouraged to start one through fear. Using fear as a basis, we are coerced into becoming Christians and starting this relationship. So I have to wonder, what is different? Do the ends really justify the means? Honestly, that's not even what this episode is about. I've just gone off on a multi-minute tangent because I think this definition of hell and the way that it is pushed on people, especially young people, is more than problematic. I think it's downright dangerous. And if we're thinking about this particular viewpoint of hell, I have to name that this is not the only way hell has been imagined or even is currently imagined in the Christian tradition. Contrary to popular belief, there hasn't been one consistent view of hell throughout the history of Christianity. The views have shifted and evolved considerably over the last 2,000 years, so let me give you a few examples of different beliefs about hell. Origen, who was a 3rd century theologian, believed that the wicked were punished after death just long enough for their souls to repent and be reunited with God. Arrhenius, who was a 2nd century bishop, emphasized that the soul was not immortal and that eternal life would be bestowed upon the good with the resurrection of Christ, while the wicked would be left to die and fade from existence. Then there's Augustine of Hippo, who described the primary purpose of hell as a way to satisfy the demands of justice for God. He believed in the literal existence of a lake of fire, where people could burn without being consumed and suffer without dying. So even in just a few hundred years of Christian history, we have some very prominent figures that have starkly different understandings of what hell could be or would be. Today, there are many different understandings and iterations of doctrines about hell, but there are three that seem to be uh, the most common. The first is what we call the traditional doctrine. In the traditional doctrine, it's believed that some people, maybe even the majority of humans, won't be saved. They'll be judged once and for all once they die and either given eternal life in heaven or eternal condemnation and damnation in hell. Here, hell is said to be a place of endless punishment for sin. The second interpretation of hell is called annihilationism or conditional immortality. In this belief, the human soul is not naturally immortal, and so instead, eternal existence is a gift that God gives to those who are redeemed or who deserve it. Those who don't deserve it or are unrepentant are punished temporarily, and then at the final resurrection, they're just erased from existence. I should note that some also believe that at the final resurrection, those who were initially unrepentant will be given a second chance to repent from their ways and thus receive eternal life. The third understanding of hell is called restorationism or universalism. In this understanding, everyone is saved eventually, and God restores creation to perfect harmony. People who hold this belief might note that eternal punishment is contradictory to the love of God, since God wills the salvation of all and has the power to overcome sin and evil. If there is a hell, they would say, it's not eternal and the punishment is temporary and remedial, leading the sinner towards repentance and union with God. While you might be able to guess which of these three I would lean towards, I'm not actually going to debate these points of view. I simply listed them as a reminder that there have always been and even currently are other ways of imagining hell 
that are rooted in both tradition and scripture. However, I think there's something missing even from the most progressive of these understandings. I think the concept of hell can offer or provide a sense of security and stability and help us make sense of life's randomness. If you do something bad or evil while you're here, even if you get away with it on earth, it's nice to believe that eventually you're going to pay for it. It offers people clear rules that you can live by and utilize to organize or make sense of your lives. And I think for some folks, it can be quite comforting. For others, it can be unsettling at best and absolutely terrifying and unfair at worst. What I want to introduce today is another way of understanding hell that is rooted and influenced by liberation theology. Liberation theology was birthed from the lived experiences of marginalized people, first in the global south and then later throughout the world. In Central and South America, it sprang up from the perspective of those dealing with unjust economic policies that left them hungry and destitute. In the United States, it arose as a result of the continued violence and disenfranchisement of African Americans. In parts of Asia, it emerged as a result of income disparities that saw skyscrapers rising from the ground even as poverty and hunger became more widespread. And while there are many variations of liberation theology, what many of them have in common is an understanding that God is a God of the oppressed and a God that cares about the salvation of people while they're still living. Liberation theology suggests that hell is now. We don't have to wait to die in order to experience the burning flames, intense pain, and constant agony of hell. Credited as one of the founders of liberation theology, spoke about a preferential option for the poor. By this he means that God wants to pay special attention to those who have been excluded from the banquet table. He writes, quote, Material poverty means premature and unjust death. The poor person is someone who is treated as a non-person, someone who is considered insignificant from an economic, political, and cultural point of view. The poor count as statistics. They are the nameless. But even though the poor remain insignificant within society, they are never insignificant before God. End quote. While Gutierrez was focusing on the global poor, James Cone, one of the preeminent black liberation theologians, was arguing that black power is not antithetical to the gospel message. Cone unpacked theology from the lens of black folks in the U.S. who had inherited their slave master's religion and were still being politically and socially oppressed. He notes in his work, Black Liberation and Black Theology, quote, In Christ, God enters human affairs and takes sides with the oppressed. Their suffering becomes his, their despair, divine despair. Through Christ, the poor man is offered freedom now to rebel against that which makes him other than human. End quote. For Cohen and Gutierrez, Jesus is seen as a co-sufferer, one who came and experienced the deep injustices of the political and social systems of his day. Thus, Jesus' message and ministry were focused on what was happening in the present moment rather than on life after death. Later in his work, Black Theology and Black Power, Cohn writes that there is no room in this perspective for an eschatology dealing with a reward in heaven. He says that Black Theology has hope for this life. The appeal to the next life is a lack of hope. Liberation theologians like Cohn and Gutierrez understood Jesus through the lens of the violence of their lived experience, in the same way that previous European theologians understood Jesus through their own lived experiences. 
and to take seriously the experiences of Black, Indigenous, people of color, and impoverished people throughout the globe is to acknowledge that hell is present now. We don't need to look for it. We don't need to speculate about how long it lasts after we die. People see it, feel it, and face it day in and day out. The violence of poverty, white supremacy, and patriarchy have created lived conditions that are as bad, if not worse, than anything scripture alludes to or our brightest theologians can imagine. George Floyd had a knee pressed into his neck for eight minutes. That is hell. Sarah Everard was stalked, kidnapped, and murdered after leaving a friend's house on her way home. That is hell. Thousands of children in Flint, Michigan were exposed to lead poisoning, and years later, the cognitive impacts are still being felt. That is hell. Delana Ashley Yawn, Paul Andre Michaels, Shou Jae Tan, Dao Yo Fung, and four others were murdered in the violent attacks at massage parlors in the Atlanta area. That is hell. And I haven't even begun to talk about the Jewish Holocaust the genocide that took place and is still taking place against Native Americans and indigenous people across the globe, the enslavement, lynching, and systemic oppression of black people in the United States, the separation and violence being perpetuated against immigrant and refugee families in this country, the military coup taking place in Myanmar, the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, or the rampant death and hunger as a result of the conflict in Syria. I could go on and on and on, but folks, the point is that our actions, our political and social actions, our economic systems, the lack of justice that we have tolerated for so long, have created and continue to create conditions that mean hell is here today. We don't need to dream about it. We don't need to imagine it. We don't need to wait for it. And we certainly don't need to put on large-scale productions to scare people into accepting God. If you want to see hell, go where the disenfranchised are. You'll find it quickly. So what can we learn from liberation theology? Well, in short, we can learn that our attention needs to be focused on the here and now. If any part of our faith tradition or theology removes our attention from the suffering that exists today, then it must be reevaluated, period. This isn't an episode where I'm going to give you a lot of things to do. This is something you have to sit with. For many, the concepts of heaven and hell are foundational to their belief systems. So doing the work of facing the discomfort or even the pain that arises when you begin to question those beliefs, it's hard work and it takes time. Go slow and be gentle with yourself. If you'd like to read some works or some authors that talk about hell, unpack theology, or explore liberation theology in more depth, I've got some quick recommendations for you. You can check out If Grace is True by Philip Gully and James Mulholland, Love Wins by Rob Bell, God of the Oppressed and the Cross and the Lynching Tree, both by James Cone, Mujerista Theology by Ada Maria Isasi Diaz, and The Womanist Midrash by Gaffney C. Wilda. 
I also highly recommend doing an anti-racism training like Undoing Racism. I've posted a link to that in the episode description of this podcast. And really the point of this is to be in a situation in a context that helps you unpack the ways you think, the culture, and the waters that you swim in that contribute to racist ideologies and ultimately racist practices in your organization, in our political system, in your family, etc. What I really want to leave you with is this idea that this isn't just about unpacking theology. It's not just about learning about a new way of thinking about hell. It's about reorienting ourselves to understand that we have to be concerned about the lived experiences of people here and now. Our theology must take into account the detrimental effects of our political choices, our social systems, and our cultural norms that deprive people of their basic needs and desires. And that requires not only unpacking our theology, but unpacking our value systems, unpacking the ways that we exist and are experienced in the world, recognizing the ways that our actions and thoughts have contributed to the harm and pain that others have suffered, and maybe even that we ourselves have suffered. And to do all that, you need some basic tools, which is why a training like Undoing Racism might be helpful. And above all, I'm going to remind you again to go slow. This is hard work, and it's important work. So take care of yourselves, please. So what would it take to believe that hell is closer than we think? We know what to do. So let's get started. Thank you for listening to the What Would It Take podcast. To view the source material for this episode, check out the show notes. If you'd like to find more great content from Anabaptist World, visit anabaptistworld.org. And if you want to learn more about me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as Benjamin J. Tapper. Mm-hmm.